Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hi, everybody. Now, Naomi, today we are going to be delving into Irish foreign policy a little bit, and specifically Ireland's history and relationship with the UN, the United Nations. Of course, the United Nations is a global intergovernmental organization that brings together the world's countries basically to try and find common solutions. It's one of the structures that was built after the Second World War with the aim of trying to avoid a repeat of such a disaster. Yeah, right. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the longer history of Ireland in the context of the various intergovernmental organizations like this and collective security, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds, we promise. And uh, we're going to reach right back to the founding of the original League of Nations in mm. 1920. Right, because this is part of the whole story of Ireland emerging as an independent nation, of course. We'll also take a look at Ireland's long tradition of peacekeeping within the UN, what it means to hold a seat on the UN Security Council, and what Ireland actually does as part of this organisation. And we'll be hearing from Niall McCann, who recently left the UN after a long tenure working for the organisation in various roles around the world. He told us about why some of its structures might be in dire need of reform and how the organisation could be adapted for the realities of the 21st century. I mean, it really is as bad, if, if anybody's seen the movie Team America World Police, where there's you know a caricature of if, you know, telling it this dictator, if you do not stop developing weapons of mass destruction, we will be really, really angry with you and we will be forced to send you a letter telling you how angry we are with you. The Security Council cannot even do that okay. in a case like uh, Ukraine. Okay, so Naomi, it's it's funny that we found this topic right now, actually, because regular listeners will remember from just our last few episodes on the War of Independence that membership of international organizations like the UN was one of the central strategies of the Revolutionary Irish Republic after it was declared back in 1919. Right. Of course, the whole story of the War of Independence was, of course, wrapped up in the wider context of World War I and its aftermath. And it was that same context that underpinned the creation of one of the four runners of the UN, the League of Nations. Right. So what is the League of Nations? Uh, the League of Nations was founded at the Paris Peace Conference in Versailles in 1920. And the Paris Peace Conference was basically a settlement conference between 32 countries, the victors of World War I, to set the peace terms for that post-war period. It was headed, back then, by the leaders of France, Italy, the UK and the USA, players that we're going to see coming back again later on. Mm -hmm. And they were mainly negotiating with each other about how war reparations should be imposed on Germany, mainly, uh, but also about how to prevent this kind of devastating war, you know, this unprecedented kind of war from breaking out again, because, like, you know, theoretically nobody could afford it, even though they went on to do it again (laughs) pretty shortly. Um, Now, yeah, uh, like this conference had some really momentous consequences, 
like national boundaries all around the world were redrawn because mm. of this conference. Mm. We see these handovers of colonial territories, a lot of them from Germany to Britain, for instance. And most famously, it imposed those very severe financial, military and economic penalties on Germany, which helped to create a whole new set of tensions in Europe, which would go on to underpin World War II. It also resulted in the establishment of the League of Nations. This was a so-called world organization, which aimed to maintain peace by uniting the nations of the world. There was a League of Nations commission at this conference, mm -hmm. and in 1919, they had already set up a covenant that nations could sign up to. Mm -hmm. So signatories of the covenant, uh, they agreed to respect each other's national territories, right? So we recognize your country, we're a country, we'll leave mm -hmm. each other alone. That was the idea. And they agreed to respect and preserve, quote, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. Mm. They would form a council that would meet together at least once a year to, like, hash out their various problems. And if a conflict broke out between them, they agreed to bring the matter to together, right, for arbitration, to, to have a talk about it, right, um, mm. for I think it was a period of at least three months before resorting to war. So, talk it out, guys. <laughs> talk it out for at least three months. It, sound, <laughs> it doesn't sound like much, I suppose, but in the context of this Europe that's just constantly going to war with itself, this was a pretty big, you know, moment of growth, right, for, for European <laughs> nations or for, for nations in the West, rather. Now, loads of people were very cynical about all this. And in retrospect, they kind of had a point sometimes, like the League of Nations ultimately didn't stop World War II, as we just said. Mm. And by the end of the Second World War, it had it had been disbanded, obviously. Um, but in loads of ways, you can see this as a kind of reaction, I suppose, maybe a delayed reaction to the these radical economic and political changes that had taken place during the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you know, mm. industrialization and the industrialization of war, right? Mm -hmm. um, the League of Nations, this wasn't an empire, right? So it wasn't an empire, it wasn't a super state. It was an organization of independent nations working together mm. voluntarily. Whatever way you look at it, that really represents this kind of paradigm shift when you consider that at this point in 1920, so much of the world had for so long been organized under imperial structures. That's a really fascinating way of setting it out, Tim. Um, and I hadn't really mm. thought about it in those clear terms as well. But of course, once you once you see that, you can also see that the revolutionary Irish Republic, you can understand why it was so interested in becoming part of a system like this, like it was on board with mm. that logic. Um, so as we discussed in our War of Independence series, they knew that Britain would never recognize their independence. So their primary st strategy was to essentially bypass Westminster and gain recognition on the international stage. And where better to do that than this conference where all the most powerful nations on the earth were literally redrawing international borders. Yeah, yeah, right. This is good opportunity, right? Seize that moment, guys. <laughs> Probably, you know, uh, yeah, if there was any conference happening uh, around the place, this was the one to be at. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> um, almost immediately after the covenant of the League of Nations was even announced uh, in 1919, the Dáil, which had just kind of formed at that point, they voted to join. They said, yeah, yeah mm. we'll sign it. We'll sign it straight away. So you'll remember that the delegates or certain delegates from the Dáil like showed up in Paris during that first round of peace conference uh, in 1919 mm. and they were trying to lobby international leaders to recognize the Irish Republic, right? Yeah. Now, 
everyone at that conference, everyone in Paris that year knew that it was pretty much out of the question that Ireland was going to get to sit around the table here, right? Because not only um, had it not been recognised internationally yet, but mm. Britain was one of the big players here, right? Like Britain was kind of hosting this whole thing. It was right. one of the big four players at this conference. David Lloyd George was there also. Of course, David Lloyd George is, is the guy who went on to sign the Anglo-Irish Treaty a few years later. And he was like, absolutely not. Go away. <laughs> Stop bothering me. I'm dealing with global issues here. Ireland, could you be quiet just for a moment, right? <laughs> you mm. know? But at the same time, right, you know, the fact that a secessionist republic which had declared independence within the territory of one of these main negotiating countries was enough to get the Irish delegates a lot of attention, right? Mm. It, it, kind of ironically, it made them stand out a lot because here you have, you know, Britain sitting as one of these big players around the table trying to discuss all this stuff and this big glaring elephant in the room of this unresolved territorial crisis that, you know, it was either not handling or handling extremely badly. Mm. So that, that along with, um, you might remember, the message to the nations of the world. Remember that from our, from our previous episode? Yes. Um, uh, that, that document that the doll had produced alongside his Declaration of Independence, that all very much cemented Ireland's internationalist strategy and it made mm. people aware of it. Like this was a message and it was a clear message that once Ireland did get its independence recognised, it fully intended to launch itself right into international cooperatives like this. Mm. So, like, in a way, it's almost kind of nation-building before the fact of nation, right? They're already preparing the Irish Republic before it's even recognised internationally. And, of course, the recognition of any nation, it it relies on these sorts of international agreements about where borders lie and mutual recognition and so so on. So this is absolutely fundamental to that kind of state-building. And the strategy Mm. that you refer to there in terms of like taking it international, that absolutely held true. So it was actually in 1923, which is less than a year after the Irish Free State left the UK, the newly independent state applied to join the League of Nations once again. And this time it was successful. And it remained a member until the organisation basically dissolved in 1946. Yeah, right. So when you consider the ambiguities of that Anglo-Irish treaty that created the Free State, Mm. you can really see why it was so important to do stuff like this, to try and consolidate this idea of nationhood. So you might remember that the text of the treaty was really ambiguous. And it was so ambiguous that the Free State was able to recognise its sovereignty. Mm. But Britain could read the same text and use it to refuse Irish sovereignty, right? It was that ambiguous. So once again, Ireland finds itself in this position where it's kind of relying on getting the rest of the world to treat it like a sovereign nation, right? Mm. Um, You know, it could kind of, once again, kind of take control of the narrative here and just style itself and present itself as a completely independent sovereign nation, whether Britain liked it or not, right? And just try and get that try and get that to be a thing, right? You know, try and, try and make sovereignty happen. Uh, so in... Stop trying to make sovereignty happen, Gretchen. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice recognition of the exact <laughs> reference that I had in my mind. <laughs> trying to make fetch happen, Ireland. But <laughs> they did. So in 1923, uh, the Free State's head of government, William T. Cosgrave, he made the following speech to the assembled League of Nations members in Geneva as this new member of the League of Nations. He says, On behalf of Ireland, one of the oldest and yet one of the youngest nations, and speaking for the Irish government and the Irish delegation, 
I thank this assembly of the League of Nations for the unanimous courtesy and readiness with which our application to be admitted to membership of the League has been received and approved. It is our earnest desire to enable even the weakest of nations to live their own lives and to make their own proper contribution to the good of all, free even from the shadow and the fear of external violence. We are mindful of our national proverb, being gok tosnu lag, every beginning is weak. Hmm. And we trust that in time to come, adequate means and faithful use of them will justify our common hopes. We shall return to our own country and take part with our own patriotic people in the enormous work of national construction and consolidation. The kind welcome, the cordial words of understanding that have greeted us here on the part of every nation whose representatives we have met will not be forgotten. Nice statesman voice there, Tim. I like it. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank by the way, that's <laughs> the first reference I've heard to this national proverb. I've never heard that one before. Um, but it's a good one. It's because it's just not a national proverb. I don't know. I've never heard that in my life. Also, I'm if adopting it is, it's, it. It's... <laughs> it might not be true, but it's encouraging if you're starting out. Yeah, well, listen, he, he used it well. Of course, the League of Nations began to fall into decline as the Second World War escalated in Europe. It basically wasn't effective. The nations of it were now at war and the whole thing sort of dissolved. Its final meeting took place in 1946 and it was replaced mm. with the United Nations which absorbed many of the bodies formerly associated with the League. Once again, this was a project aiming at preventing the outbreak of future wars. But considering the unprecedented global devastation caused by the Second World War, this was on a much larger scale. It also focused quite a bit on identifying and really eliminating the causes of conflict before they even began. Things like poverty, human rights, abuses and inequality. So the first UN conference opened in 1945. And soon afterwards, it established a charter. So very similar to like the covenant that had been established by the League, right? So mm -hmm. once again, countries sign up to this, about 50 countries around the world. And this time it was headed by a security council with five permanent members, the usual suspects, right? The US, the UK, France, and now China and Soviet Russia as well. Um, one of the big differences with what had come before, of course, was actually this membership of the United States. The United States had never actually joined the previous League of Nations, even though it was involved in setting it up. Hmm. But now the US was a founding member of the UN and the headquarters of the organization were set up in a kind of international zone in New York City. Now, initially, Ireland was actually refused entry to this new United Nations oh. um, because its application was vetoed. Can you guess by whom, Naomi? By whom? By whom? By whom? By, by whom? By, Ru by Russia, actually. Um, mean? Because of Why? Pretty mean. They also held it up for nine years. They kept okay. vetoing them for nine years. And that was because of neutrality okay. during World War II. Okay. It was a bit suspicious. It was also because Ireland was not setting up, like, very healthy diplomatic relations with Russia, actually. Mm -hmm. And we'll see why in a minute, why that there was a little spat going on there. And this is, of course, the Soviet, it's the Soviet Union that we're talking about at this point. This is the Soviet Union. Yes, yeah. of course. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, now, it, it wasn't until actually 1955 that this veto was finally removed. And then Ireland became the 63rd member of the United Nations, along with a lot of other countries that were in that kind of similar status. I think there were about 16 that were on the waiting mm. list at that point. 
Now, this was a really interesting time because, of course, the following years after 1955 would be completely dominated by the Cold War mm. and Ireland had to find its place in that. So generally, um, Ireland was actually quite vocal about being pro-Western and pro-democracy. Mm. But it also styled itself as a kind of mediator, right? It, it was like, we're this small country, right? We have no major vested interests in international wars. We've had this tradition of military neutrality. We could do it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could be an advocate instead of um, kind of taking sides for peace in most situations. Mm. So in 1956, the Irish Minister for External Affairs, Liam Cosgrave, who was actually the son of William T. Cosgrave, who just made that speech in my in my speech voice earlier. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Liam Cosgrave. Liam, by the way, is just um, the Irish for William as well, or it's the equivalent Irish name okay. that's usually given to William. So it's, it's William Jr., really. Sort of international affairs, Irish affairs dynasty developing here. Isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. funny, huh? So he announces three principles of Ireland's UN policy in the Dáil. Now, these, right. are, these are really interesting. Now, so first of all, they said, well, he said in the Dáil, he said, instead of trying to like shirk or get around the obligations of this UN charter, like loads of countries were trying to do, right? He said Ireland should just like really step up, try and follow these obligations to mm. the letter, right? To mm. really show show everyone that they were in this. He, he said, I quote, I believe that the more sincere and single-minded we are in upholding the principles of the charter, the more respect and influence we will come to enjoy as a member of the organization. Mm. So, like, not only is Ireland a member of the UN now, it's like golden boy, right? It's like top of the class, teacher's pet, right? That's kind of uh, what he's he's suggesting. But it's funny how things are consistent over time. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, Secondly, Liam Cosgrave proposed that Ireland should avoid joining geopolitical cliques, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of little groups, little clubs in the playground. Mm. And that they should maintain this position of objectivity when it came to international affairs. He said, quote, we should try to maintain a position of independence, judging the various questions on which we have to adopt an attitude or cast our vote strictly on their merits in a just and disinterested way. As deputies may know, there is a tendency in some international organizations for the members to form themselves into geographical or other blocks or groups. To a certain extent, that may be inevitable. So far as we are concerned, however, our aim should be, I think, to avoid becoming associated with particular blocks or groups so far as possible. Hmm. This is another really interesting one, and they really did carry through with this, actually. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a... Hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. okay. Thirdly, okay, and this kind of explains a lot about this whole kind of accession to the UN context. Mm. Liam Cosgrave vowed to be opposed to the global spread of communism. Mm. Now, we can see why Soviet Russia might have been a little bit uh, cynical Mm. about Ireland's joining the UN. This is because this is all wrapped up with Catholicism. Okay, so this is a moment, of course, when the Catholic Church was freaking out about communism, right? Mm. Because, to say the very least, communism and the Catholic Church didn't um, gel particularly well. Mm. Um, and here, you can really see how church influence, combined with this kind of conservative Irish establishment that was in place in the mid-20th century, how that played such an in- 
influential role in policymaking. Mm. I even remember this from the 80s, like priests and like the Catholic Church in general harping on about communism and mm. getting really political. I think they they actually um, they put the Festival of Mary around this time on the 1st of May to try and offset May Day, to try and get people to be religious instead of, like, political around labor activism. So it's like Mary Day instead. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, they really were kind of actively trying to to prevent uh, the spread of communism. So Ireland could be seen, I suppose, as this little ambassador of the Catholic Mm. Church at this point. This is deep (laughs) 20th century, deep Catholic, like, dominance over the government at this point. And you can absolutely see how these tensions were there uh, between Ireland and Russia. Uh, So listen to what he says. So Liam Cosgrave says about this third principle. It must be our constant concern. Indeed, it is our moral responsibility to do whatever we can as a member of the United Nations to preserve the Christian civilization of which we are a part. And with that end in view, to support wherever possible those powers principally responsible for the defence of the free world in their resistance to the spread of communist power and influence. Mm. This, it seems to me, must be a principle not simply of our policy at the United Nations, but of our foreign policy as a whole. It's really interesting and doesn't sound particularly like it fits with what he was just saying about being a neutral and not being in a block and stuff like right. that. But then he's talking about the free yeah. worlds. It's interesting. Of course, for context, it's important to understand that the Soviet Union at this point um, had an official position of atheism and that came with the suppression of religion and Christianity with, you know, the sort of seizure of church property, churches, the persecution of priests and so on. It's interesting how you can see the roots of some of the like geopolitical fissures that still run across the globe, even when they're coming from initially a different rationale, in this case, Christianity. Listen, uh, we we could get bogged down in this. But the last thing I want to say about this kind of moment of accession to the UN is that at this stage in 1956, uh, Cosgrave is still talking about UN membership in the terms of Irish nation building. Mm. It's the same old thing, right? So he talks, for instance, about... Ireland having the power now to help other former colonies achieve independence on Mm, the same terms as Ireland had. Yeah, so like, I mean, his point kind of is not just independence where like the countries will become dictatorships or banana republics or whatever. Independence where they get like a a proper kind of democratic government. That's his point. Mm. Uh, So he says, quote... In Asia, Africa, and other parts of the world, there is a growing desire for self-determination on the part of subject peoples and the rise of national feeling in opposition to systems of imperialistic domination surviving from the past. It is impossible for us with our history to regard this general development otherwise than with sympathy. Many of these national movements have drawn encouragement and inspiration from the story of our own national struggle, and the ideals of freedom and self-determination which they proclaim. Ideals which are recognised and endorsed today in the Charter of the United Nations. These are the same ideals as animated the Irish people in their struggle for independence. Now, elsewhere in the speech, he also reminds the doll that UN involvement could be one of the keys to resolving partition in Ireland. Through their demonstrating commitment to other analogous international problems, right? So if they showed themselves as uh, as part of an organization that was ha- helping resolve issues like this, they could maybe resolve their own issue. He says, 
in the United Nations, of which we are now members, we are, as has already been announced, determined to miss no opportunity of seeking to undo the unnatural division of our country. We do not, however, propose to raise the issue on inappropriate occasions, or to give the world the impression that we have no interest in any matter of international policy, save that of partition alone. We might actually delve into that one a bit more in our half-pint debrief, because there's so much more Absolutely. to unpack there. Yeah, so if you're not mm. a um, Patreon subscriber, the place to find it is patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. We'll put the link in the show notes, and if you sign up, we'll get the, you'll get the bonus content, like our chat, uh, kind of unpacking this whole episode and issues like partition. So it's interesting now, um, in the following years after that, Ireland's policy of diplomatic independence was really put to the test. So during the Suez crisis, for example, in 1956, that was when uh, Britain like abortively tried to invade Egypt to stop them taking back control of the Suez Canal. Mm. Um, at that point, Ireland spoke out against Britain, France and Israel concerning the invasion of the Suez Canal zone. Um, that was actually quite ballsy, uh, considering that Britain and France were literally the two closest neighbours of Ireland geographically and also among the most powerful countries in the world. Also the case that Ireland stood up for Algeria uh, during its war of independence from France. Uh, so really interesting to note those occasions where, you know, Ireland is going against its immediate geographic neighbours. Over the following years, Ireland developed its role then in the UN as one of the peacekeeping nations, uh, particularly through involvement of the Irish Defence Forces in UN missions. Just to remind you what a peacekeeping mission actually is, is it's typically on a border or some kind of contested space or place. UN forces go there. Uh, they don't have any authorization to like get involved in combat. They're just put there as a kind of buffer to like stop two sides from fighting each other. So it's a it's a it's a tactic to try and avoid new conflicts developing essentially. And Ireland has a very heavy involvement in these, particularly in Lebanon. Okay, and that actually brings us very nicely right up to the present day. So mm. we've established quite a lot of background there. So at this stage, Ireland has now served multiple times on the UN Security Council. To, before we can even really understand what, what the ramifications of that are, Naomi, could you explain what does the UN do today? And what, what is it, its function in the 21st century? Yeah, so we, as we already set out, I mean, the main, the main point of the UN is to prevent future world wars. Um, but within that con and wars in general, but within that context, it actually encompasses like a very wide range of global projects. It's a kind of umbrella body and it has lots of programs within it. And some of these are in themselves really enormous stuff like the World Food Program, for example, dedicated to averting famine, the World Health Organization, which became very prominent, of course, during the re recent pandemic, uh, UNICEF for children, UNESCO for the protection of heritage. UNHCR for the protection of human rights. There's actually loads and loads of these. They have different headquarters around the world, uh, slightly different jobs. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they operate in countries trying to advance, uh, you know, the priorities of the UN basic goods and the UN charter. And in order to do that, they need the consent of the government's uh, with, with whom, you know, they're working in the, in those countries to get access, uh, which is sometimes a delicate balance because uh, those governments, you know, they can be operating in authoritarian states and so on, but they try to 
They try to retain access as a priority. And this sometimes comes with some difficult trade-offs, which we might discuss with Niall. Okay, right. So, like, we, we saw that in the past, Ireland had a tradition of being teacher's pet, right? <laughs> to, yeah. Like, following following all this to the letter. Um, where does Ireland fit in the UN structures and the UN culture in its current form? Mm. So, a, a few key facts about Ireland's relationship with the UN. One is that Ireland has the longest unbroken record of sending soldiers to serve on UN peacekeeping missions in the world. So Ireland has actually wow. been doing that nonstop since 1958. And it's actually hmm. the, the sixth largest contributor of troops to the UN in the whole European Union. That's a really outsized contribution, particularly for a very small military power. Um, mm. Not a military power to speak of at all. Um, and that's one of the main things that our defense forces actually do. Uh, mostly hmm. the uh, operations that they've been on are, as I've said, in Lebanon and, and also in Africa. That's so interesting, uh, actually. Kind of, and like, it just makes me realize now, actually, that my, like, just memories or encounters of meeting Irish soldiers over the years have always been people who have just come back from Lebanon or Africa, mm. actually. Mm. Um, it's always been in that context. So I suppose this kind of like this image, I suppose, that maybe British people or American people have of soldiers like, you know, being associated with maybe Afghanistan or Iraq, the Irish image of soldiers is very much in a kind of UN context, actually, yeah. kind of typically. Yeah. Mm. Right now, as we record, Ireland actually holds a seat on the UN Security Council, which is its most powerful body. There's five permanent members of the UN Security Council, and then it also has elected members that serve temporarily. And Ireland got elected to the seat, had to campaign for it, mm. and it won. And Ireland has used this position for a really interesting reason um, or for an interesting purpose. Ireland has used its position on the Security Council to argue for a really fundamental reform of how the UN works. And that's the removal of the so-called veto. Aha. So so hold on. Is this is this revenge? Is this some kind of revenge for Russia holding out on them for nine years? Is the same? <laughs> what is the veto? Can you explain? How does it work? Funnily enough, actually, Russian vetoes continue to dog Ireland and, and, and its sort of record in the UN, which is kind of fascinating. Huh. I'll just explain quickly. The five permanent members of the UN Security Council are China, uh, France, Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States. So they basically reflect uh, like more or less the victors from World War II. And they're a bit of a snapshot in time historically. Being a permanent Security Council member means that you can veto major resolutions. If, if there's something you don't like, you don't have to approve it. And this causes really big problems because sometimes these states don't see eye to eye. And the most, it was really like vividly illustrated by the fact that Russia vetoed uh, the UN condemning its invasion of Ukraine. This, this sort of showed up a dysfunctionality in the UN. And also it, it betrayed like weakness in the UN at the time when it was becoming really evident that it was failing to prevent what it was supposed to prevent, what it was set up to prevent, which is like the invasion of countries, right? So even before the, the invasion of Ukraine illustrated all of this, though, Ireland was actually already calling for the removal of that veto. The, the choice of those five member states is a bit anachronistic at this point. Like what? France, the United Kingdom. These are like 
medium-sized European countries. It's very strange. They're not they're not global powers anymore. It's odd for the two of them yeah. to be on it. Um, and you know, what about India? What about there's no representation for Africa or like Latin America, huge parts of the world unre- unrepresented, and then you have these. You know, it's a, it's a strange assortment of countries and the existence of this veto kind of warps it a bit as well. Yeah. But anyway, so I'll, I'll let um, Ireland's then ambassador to the UN, Jim Kelly, make the case for why Ireland was using its platform as an elected member to urge for the repeal of the veto. This council has a responsibility to act in the face of conflict, to protect international peace and security to uphold the principles the world agreed upon in response to the utter devastation of the Second World War. This is not a responsibility that Ireland takes lightly, yet it is one that we were prevented from discharging today in spite of the clear and declared will of the great majority of this Council's members. Mr President, We deeply regret the use of the veto today by the Russian Federation. The veto is an anachronism which has no place in today's world. The use of the veto to block council action is always unacceptable. Its use today in blatant defence of military aggression is reprehensible. I spoke to Niall McCann, who worked in the United Nations for 11 years in a number of different roles all around the world. And he told me a bit more about why the design of the UN as it is, is somewhat out of date and how it could be reformed. The veto power of the five permanent members really does uh, hang over the workings of the Security Council. Like it really is the elephant in the room um, that prevents the Security Council from doing its main job, the main reason it was set up, which was to prevent conflicts like this. Mm -hmm. It's indefensible that you have two European um, member states, permanent veto-wielding permanent members of the Security uh, uh, Council when you have... Uh, no permanent representation from the African Union, no permanent representation from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, yeah. from the League of Arab States, from the Organization of American States, etc. And that, to me, is the answer here. Uh, if you want to design a Security Council for the 21st century, of course you have to have China, Russia and the United States. Of course. It would be incredibly naive to argue that you wouldn't have, as permanent members, those three Uh, uh, global powers. Mm -hmm. But equally, it does seem obvious to me that the solution um, to building a more equitable and fair Security Council, as permanent members then, you would have some representation of the African Union, some representation of the Organization of American States representing South America, representation of the Caribbean community, Mm -hmm. representation of the Pacific Islands Forum, representation of the Arab League, representation of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Niall told me that he feels Ireland's contribution to the UN is sometimes overlooked. Irish people, I feel, should be incredibly proud of Ireland's history and current work in the United Nations system. We absolutely overachieve and have a much, much higher footprint than our population suggests that we would have. We have some brilliant, brilliant diplomats. 
um, in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Now, you would expect as a country like Ireland, you're always going to be sending your best diplomats to missions like London, the Irish Embassy in London, or the Irish Embassy in, the, in Washington, or the permanent representation to the European Union here in Brussels, but also to the United Nations. Those would be the four major um, uh, uh, diplomatic postings. And we have exceptionally good diplomats. Right now, Ambassador Geraldine Bernays and her predecessor, Ambassador David Dunne, who as Ireland's permanent representatives to the United Nations, are diplomatic heavyweights and are hugely valued and respected uh, by the other member states. And evidence of that, even in the last couple of years, you know, Ireland facilitated the negotiations of the of the New York Declaration in support of migrants and refugees that ended up um, leading to the adoption of the UN Global Compact on Refugees and the UN Global Compact on Migration. Ireland was asked to facilitate that process. Ireland was asked, along with Kenya, to facilitate the final negotiations of the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda. The SDG Agenda, the, Re- the General Assembly Resolution that was passed that approved the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 Development Goals and the 169 Targets. That is probably the most significant international um, political document that has been approved. It's certainly within the UN system in the last couple of decades. Mm. Ireland was asked to lead that process along with Kenya. That doesn't just happen by chance. It goes to show you the evidence, the high regard in which Ireland is held internationally Mm. By, other, uh, by other member states. So I do think Irish people should be very, very proud of that. And I've always been a little bit surprised. Maybe I've been living in my UN bubble for a number of years, but it's always surprised that Ireland hasn't got more recognition at home of the exceptional work that Irish diplomats do in those types of contexts. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the modus operandi of the UN is to try to just keep everybody involved and keep being able to operate everywhere. If there's a war going on, they want to have access to bring in aid, uh, to send in observers and so on. And this requires difficult negotiations with governments that are in charge of that territory. Also, the fact of a country like China having such a major sway on the Security Council can have a big influence on what goes on. It means you're like a big dog in the room and and Russia as well. I recently reported on an incident that revealed the sway of the Permanent Security Council members within the UN in perhaps a negative way. So this this story I wrote was about um, an internal communications policy within the UN It ended up as a finalist for an investigative journalism award in Ireland, as it happens. So what happens was this. Staff within the UN system, they received a series of emails that were sent out in the build-up to the, the moment when Russia invaded Ukraine, and it's an immediate aftermath. And staff were basically instructed in these emails, first of all, to be very, very careful on social media and not necessarily to comment about the invasion and the war, But ultimately, the warnings and instructions culminated in the UN's Department of Global Communications emailing staff to instruct them not to use the words, quote, war or invasion in relation to Ukraine. That email was sent out on March 7th. So you weren't allowed to use the words war or or invasion to describe the invasion. And I wrote about this for the Irish Times. The story had quite an international impact because... Of course, Russia, the aggressor in this case, does not call its war an invasion. It actually calls it a special military operation, and it has imposed that language within Russia by actually going after media 
that call it an invasion or a war. They have to call it a special military operation. It's a, it's a fiction about the war that's very self-serving. Um, so to see this, a language policy that echoes that being imposed within the UN really set off alarm bells for a lot of people. And for many, this looked like a reflection of permanent Security Council members having too much of a sway in a really negative way, particularly when this is a moment when it's really important for this international organization to be impartial and to, to, to prevent wars. If you can't even describe that a war is going on, how are you supposed to prevent it, right? And it's very much in favor of the aggressor in this case and the one that's violating international law by invading another sovereign country. So I took an opportunity during my chat with Niall McCann to ask him if he received that email and what he could tell me about that moment. Uh, yes, we did receive it. Um, uh, I, you know, I was working in one UN agency. I can't be sure that all UN agency staff received the same instruction, but my guess is they probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, because when the, the, the global communications uh, department in the UN sends out instructions like that. They're not sending it out just to the Secretariat of the United Nations. They're sending it out to all UN uh, uh, bodies. Mm-hmm. And as your reporting on that issue showed, Naomi, I mean, I, uh, other agencies came forward then, uh, or staff from other agencies came forward in agencies like the UN Office for Project Services and the International Organization of Migration, confirming that they'd also received uh, similar um, instructions. This, I think, uh, uh, it's when, when a staff member in the UN receives this type of instruction, um, there is a, a certain level of fury, I think, mm-hmm. um, among a lot of staff, in particular really? staff working on human rights issues, mm-hmm. um, um, who find this an absolute affront to the values of, the, of not just human rights, but of the United Nations Charter mm-hmm. itself. If we were not to refer to... Russia's aggression against Ukraine as a war or an invasion, well, what the hell are we to refer to it uh, as? After my story was published, the reaction was pretty dramatic. The UN spokesperson's official account on Twitter actually called it fake news, right, in a tweet. That tweet was subsequently deleted without any explanation. Initially, the UN spokespeople fiercely denied that this happened at all. I said it just wasn't true. And then in the following hours, there was a shift in what they were saying. So they started to accept that actually this email was sent, but they started to say that it wasn't UN policy now not to use war or invasion. And then they also sort of played down how important the Department of Global Communications is, suggesting it was some sort of rogue regional office, which I think doesn't quite fit with the name Department of Global Communications, right? Uh, Anyway... As part of efforts then to sort of debunk my story, the spokespeople cited instances of UN employees using the words war, using the words invasion. But these were instances that came out after my story was published. So the whole thing was a bit of a mess. It was a very aggressive communication strategy and honestly added to my concern. Because ideally, you know, what you want a major important organization to do is to react by acknowledging mistakes, not denying them and in a kind of misleading way, uh, pretending these things never happened and falsely calling stories false and so on. Anyway, I asked Niall what it was like seeing that really harsh reaction from their communications team while he was working as a staff member at the time. Uh, uh, You know, there was a couple of things about it that I was surprised at. Uh, First of all, I was not at all surprised that um, the reaction to your story 
was for uh, the spokesperson to say, well, the Under Secretary General for Political and Peacebuilding Affairs has used the words Russia aggression and invasion, which she had. But she's the Under Secretary General for Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. She's also American and she's also a political appointee. She's also a major, major figure in the UN system. So, so Rosemary De Carlo, the Under Secretary General, is not going to feel under the same pressure that Niall McCann or tens of thousands of other UN staff who are nobodies are going to feel uh, uh, under. So I'm not surprised. What I am surprised at was that some other journalists kind of accepted the official explanation coming from UN headquarters and then also might have said, well, I guess this story isn't really 100% true because um, some of the senior UN staff have used that language. It's completely possible, as was the case that senior UN staff members use language like war and invasion and also that UN staff around the world were told not to use the similar language. Mm-hmm. And we were used, told not to use uh, that type of language. So your story was 100% accurate. That was such a, a flurry of a few days there. I remember it well back in March. And of course, it seems like it seems like several years ago now because of everything <laughs> that's happened in the world since then. Uh, listeners, you may or may not have uh, been online that day, but there was there was a moment where the entire basically um, uh, Twitter uh, feed was revolving around Naomi O'Leary there <laughs> <laughs> about this uh, absolute huge, huge, big uproar that was going on around this. It's so fascinating, and I definitely actually want to delve in to this um, uh, mm. a, a good in a good bit more detail, Naomi, and how it felt and and the steps of it uh, in our half pint debrief. Uh, mm. later on yeah it was it was interesting it actually had a major impact internationally particularly in the united states it led to like an editorial in the wall street journal that was picked up by all sorts of media um, but what was quite interesting was that the initial denial vehement denials by the un spokespeople did were quite effective even though they later changed mm. and were revealed not to be true they were quite effective in, in sort of causing people to be more cautious about picking up the story because they're like, well, yeah. you know, maybe the Irish Times is wrong. You know, it kind of made th- people think twice. But, you know, as we've just heard, our reporting was totally solid. So I spoke to Niall about whether there's a way to reform the United Nations and how, if you were to start from scratch, rebuild it from the ground up, how would it be done? Naomi, one very, very interesting issue where there's been a lot of discussions over the years as well is whether locating the UN headquarters and secretariat in New York works to the benefit of the UN as a whole. Hmm. This is a very controversial and a very sensitive issue because American support to the UN system is absolutely vital. Uh, Not only in terms of US support to the regular budget, which is 22% at the moment, Hmm. UN support, or sorry, US support to the peacekeeping budget, which is 28% uh, on on the most uh, recent uh, figures. So having strong American support for the work of the United Nations is incredibly important. However, many, many other member states feel that locating the UN in the United States probably gives a little bit too much uh, power and it also doesn't reflect the world and the, the current geopolitical state of the world and where the priorities of the United Nations should be. Um, and a lot of the Global South countries would probably be more comfortable with relocating the UN Headquarters. Now, of course, if you were to move it out of New York, well, then the obvious question arises, where would it be better located that would uh, make a stronger statement about the role of other parts of the planet? 
in the work of the United Nations system. So some of the cities that get thrown around are cities like Montreal, but that's still on that side, the, the American continent. Reykjavik is probably a very, very good uh, option within uh, Europe. But then, of course, Africa would probably say, well, no, it should be in Africa. Mm-hmm. But then should it be in, in countries that perhaps don't have the strongest commitment to human rights and democratic norms. So when you mention cities like Addis Ababa or Nairobi or or Cape Town, you're always going to find pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. I often wonder what would be a really, really good neutral alternative to where the UN could be located that would reflect global geopolitical realities, that would be in a very, very good time zone, that would possibly be in a country that isn't considered a global geopolitical threat or military threat to other parts of the world. Could we find a country in Europe, for example, that does have a proud contribution, history to the United Nations, is militarily neutral, has a strong cultural and historical footprint. But if you manage to relocate the UN to that country, could you go to the capital city with all of the pressures on housing and office space? I guess what I'm saying, Naomi, at the end of the day, the United Nations should be relocated to Limerick. <laughs> Very good. You've made a terrific case for it too. All right, listen, I, listen. I, I'll throw my hat in the ring for a United Nations headquarters <laughs> to be relocated to Limerick. Why not? Perfect place for it. Best Perfect. place in the world, in fact, you might say. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I also back this call uh, from Niall. Fair play. That's all now for this episode of the Arch Passport podcast. We'll leave it on that, that note. Thank you so much to Niall for speaking to us and uh, to all of you for listening. As we said, we'll be getting into more of this backstory to all of this and our reflections on researching the topic in a bonus half-pint debrief episode, which you can find over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Yeah, and there is a heap of other bonus content over there, including a talk that Naomi gave recently about the far right in Europe and the takeaways for Ireland, which is really, really worth a listen uh, if you get round to it. So do check that out. Slán, everybody. Slán, guys. <laughs> <laughs>